following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, nice to see you guys. If uh, I seem a little bit immobile, it's uh, because my back's killing me. And uh, one of these uh, one of these days when I get to heaven, it'll probably be the only time it'll ever uh, be relieved. But I was just born with this condition, inherited from my father's side of the family, and uh, it's just every once in a while it flares up, and uh, then, then I, I feel like I'm walk I'm a walking comma. So I'm just going down with my back bent over, and <clears throat> the uh, the the alarm in our house went off the other day, and the and it just said check the living room. So Yvonne says, can you come with me to check the living room? I said, sure, sure. So by the time it took me to get from where I was to over where she was, she was impatient. Just took me so long. I'll go check out on my own. So she went out. And I said, I wouldn't have been much help for you anyway, honey, if we had an intruder. And uh, somebody said, well, you could just fall on the guy. I said, I could probably do that. <laughs> so it's, it's just one of those kinds of times when God brings you to a point and you just have to reflect. And you can't be fast anymore. You can't be hurried anymore. You just got to go at a go at a very snail-like speed. Uh, but it gave me a chance to look over the passage that we're going to be dealing with. And when I look at uh, Joshua chapter eleven, and one of the things that strikes me and just grabs my spirit is this whole idea of where leadership, which is one of the undercover issues that we're trying to deal with as men, how do we become influential in the lives of other people? It's not that we are charging ahead and going. <clears throat> going up Hamburger Hill in front of all of our men. Now, it could be that, but not necessarily that. But it, but always, it's, it's a matter of influence and how we influence the lives of other people. <clears throat> and I was having this discussion with a very significant leader here in our city, and we were just trying to go around, trying to figure out, between the two of us, what we thought the most important part of leadership was. And I was really curious to hear from him what he thought it was. And he said to me, you probably think it's integrity. I said, well, yeah, of course it's integrity who a man is on the inside that then demonstrates itself externally. And I says, what do you think it is? And he says, he thinks it's discernment. He says, the ability for a leader to find the talent that is around him so he can stimulate that individual to become part of their leadership team. He started using examples throughout history, and I thought, wow, this, this guy's really put some thought into this. And so ever since then, I've been contemplating where in the world does discernment fit in the business of Leadership, And it seems like at least this particular chapter will show us a little bit about discernment as it places itself in the life of Joshua. So as you think about your own self and the job that you have and the positions of responsibility you have, how in the world do you pass that on to the next guy, the next generation of leaders, and maybe the next two generation of leaders? Can you, just by watching and interacting with the people that you lead, Find your replacement who's going to take over once you're out of the picture. <clears throat> so that's one of the things about discernment. Do we have the ability to see that potential in the lives of others, then take the initiative to assist them as they develop their skills to someday step up into the areas of leadership that we currently possess? <clears throat> one of the things that we know is that uh, in leadership and influence, there's an inevitability, something that's always going to happen that's going to be required of somebody to make decisions there's going to be choices that are coming down the road, and those decisions, someone's going to have to make the call. And so our influence in the lives of those people that we lead many times 
they are looking to see what our decision will be because they are just pleased and happy that they don't have that responsibility on their shoulders. And that they are confident that the decision that we can make will be a great example for them that they can then step in and follow our leadership because of our ability to discern circumstances, to discern the intent of other people, and then make a decision that's best for whatever group that we are part of. Not only is this inevitable from the standpoint of just uh, things that are distant from us, but it's something that is a hunger in every person who's thrust into a position of responsibility. How in the world can I become better at discernment? And that ability is something that everyone who has increased responsibilities suddenly has a realization that if I don't get better at understanding how to make decisions and choices in difficult circumstances, my leadership is really not going to be very successful in the lives of all these other people. And if I start making mistakes over and over and over again, the confidence in the lives of those who follow is going to wane, erode, and disappear. Now, I spent a, a lot of my life out in the woods. I just love being out in the woods, out of doors. And so I, some of you might be in outdoor sports, and you can see a picture like this, and it's so common. Uh, you, you have a choice. There's a fork in the road. And yet that fork in the road, from the standpoint of this particular picture, seems like it's, everything's very benign. Uh, nothing doesn't really matter which way you go. It's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out one way or another, and the difference is going to be immaterial, depending if you go left or right. And yet that's what every one of us who are leaders are, are very well aware of. Sometimes decisions, and many times decisions, don't look like they're a big deal up front. But the road that we then end up going down is going to have a determination of the challenges and problems that we face. How well is our skill in discerning in advance before the problems ever arise? So I got a big kick out of this. The more I think, the more confused I get. So if you feel that way, then uh, probably there's some good company. But somewhere along the line, we've got to trust God for this capacity to be perceptive. And that discernment skill of perception is the kind of thing that we can always get better at. There's a new teacher in the school, and she really enjoyed the anticipation of the end of the school year. And that's when all the parents show up and the kids present a wonderful thank you gift to the teacher. Each take a turn and bring something up. And uh, the, first, the first little girl came up, and her parents were the owners of the local florist. So this little girl walks up with this beautiful bouquet of, of flowers, and she presents it to the teacher and thanking the teacher for a wonderful year and all the things she learned. And the teacher uh, thanked the little girl. She took the bouquet, and she, she uh, breathed in the wonderful fragrance and the, looked at the beautiful colors and thanked the, the child and nodded at the parents and put the bouquet down. And the next child came up, and uh, his, his parents were, were the, the owners of the local candy shop, and so he brought a box of chocolates and you know, these wonderful handmade custom truffles. And she opened up the box, and the fragrance and the aroma was amazing. And, and she smiled as she looked at the, the days to come when she would enjoy one of those, those chocolates every single day. And she thanked the, the little boy and nodded to the parents. And she set the chocolates down. And then the next little little uh, boy comes up, and his his parents are the owners of the local liquor shop. And he had this uh, cardboard box, and it looked like it was kind of heavy. And um, she noticed that when she was handed the box and she picked up the box from the little boy, he was so happy and thrilled. And she noticed that the box was leaking, and uh, it was leaking all over her hand. So she smiled at the little boy. She smiled at the parents, and she licked her hand for the stuff that was all over. She said, it's red wine. 
And the little boy says, no, with a big smile. And so she got some more of the liquid that was leaking out of the box, and she licked it, and she thought that she was much better at determining the things that she was tasting. She says, oh, I know, it's champagne. And the little boy shook his head, no. And the little boy smiled, and he stood up and said, it's a puppy. <laughs> I don't know if we all have memories when we had a moment when we were trying to discern based upon all of the things that we were trying to assess and all the data that, and all the input that was coming in. But oftentimes that's the case, and sometimes we just learn by trial and error. And we make assumptions based upon our past experience and the situation that's at hand. But that kind of discernment doesn't mean that we're always going to be making the same mistake all the time, but we park that into the recesses of our mind, and we learn from those kinds of decisions. So when we look at the life of Joshua, we have to ask ourselves, if we were in Joshua's situation, the discernment skills he had and the ability that he could assess what the challenges were before him, what can we learn from the example that God is giving to us in the pages of Scripture? Well, we come to this amazing point in the history of the nation of Israel as they're going into the Promised Land, and we've seen that uh, Joshua and the nation of Israel entered into the center of Palestine and conquered Jericho and Ai. And then the natural tendency for him was to go south and take out all the, the city-states in the southern part of Palestine and then go north to take out all the city-states of the north. Uh, the city-states of the south, however, did him a great favor. Instead of waiting for him to come to them, they came to, to one of the, the, the city-states that had turned against them. And um, the, the, the Gibeonites had done that. And so they all attacked the Gibeonites, and then God gave Joshua this amazing sense of initiative. Well, go after them. Uh, they've been delivered into your hands. So he goes after the, all these five southern kings that had come up to where he was anyway within a day's march. And then God does that amazing miracle of the sun standing still and the moon standing still and that horrible hailstorm that actually killed more of the Amorites than he did with a sword. So during this taking of this uh, northern kingdom, the remarkable leadership by Joshua is, is quite stunning for us. And we look at that and we could see some great examples of uh, several words that stand out for us. And one of them is all about initiative. When we have the responsibility of leadership, discernment is halfway done because we know that we cannot just wait. Leadership frequently requires us to take the initiative in order to lead the lives of the people. They're waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. They're waiting for someone to define the action that is necessary and lead the way into action in order to accomplish something. One of the tactical features that Joshua has demonstrated to us uh, all through this campaign is the element of surprise, and he works at it. He doesn't wait for something to happen. He takes the initiative, and part of that initiative is, can I outguess and outplan my opponent? to the point where I have the element of surprise and gives me the edge when I'm facing overwhelming circumstances and overpowering forces. Initiative, the element of surprise from a tactical standpoint. If you are a leader here and you're a very good strategic planner, it doesn't always mean you're a great tactician. If you're a great tactician, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to be the one who gives all the strategic anticipation of the plans that should go on. Know our strengths hire to our weaknesses, or recruit to our weaknesses. Some people, like a George Patton or a Joshua here, were very good at both. Strategic planning and tactical development to make the strategic plan achieve its objectives. 
But at least all of us who are involved with leadership should be familiar with the two features and know where we fit between the two options. There's a third thing about his leadership in in the life of Joshua that really strikes us, and that is he is relentless. Once he makes this decision and a commitment to go, he does not stop. Now, some of us who are here are built a little bit more differently than that. Sometimes we hesitate. The first time we get hit, the first time we feel pain, the first time we find discomfort, the first time there's an inconvenience, the first time we are surprised by elements that we were not expecting, sometimes we balk and we hesitate. That is something that leaders have to learn to anticipate so that they will not change their course or give up on a particular direction just because resistance becomes a surprise. The relentless component of Joshua rises to the level of his surface of being one of the most significant leadership components of his life. There's also a great sense here where Joshua is a very powerful example. He was the one who not just told people, did not just tell people what to do, but he led the way by how he actually functioned. Now, some of the great leaders in the warfare that come to mind from his history probably give to us the same example. It's like Alexander the Great was leading his massive army across the arid desert, and they were exhausted from battle, but they were trying to get to a position where they could take on their opponents in a way in which they were not expecting, but it required a very aggressive march through the desert, a direction from which the enemy would not expect them to come from. They were two weeks marching in the desert. Most of their supplies were gone. All their water was gone. They had sent out scouts and fanned them out in front to try to find water sources. Two of the scouts came back. And the amount of water they brought back was really laughable. It was enough for like an eight-ounce cup. And, of course, who do they give the cup of water to? They give it to their leader, their general, Alexander. And Alexander took the cup, and he looked at the water, how refreshing and satisfying that would be. And in front of all of his troops out there in the hot desert, he took that cup of water, and he poured it onto the sand. And the soldiers were shocked. And he didn't insult the spies who brought it back to him or the scouts who brought it back to him, but he said to everyone who was there, what good is one cup of water for one when all of us thirst? Now, there is an incredible example of someone who was uh, 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 not just above everybody else, but he looked at all of his troops that he was leading, and he put himself on an equal plane with all of them. He would not take advantages just because of his position if the people that he was leading could not also be encouraged as well. So this remarkable list of just four simple qualities. And gentlemen, one of the things that we need to do as we influence the lives of others, Joshua's example could be a great encouragement to all of us. Now over and over again, when God calls a nation of Israel to go through different phases and they have different kinds of leaders who face them, one of the things that seems to always happen is the enemy that is coming against them is incredibly formidable. Now, when they were going against the tribes of the north, they were going to experience something for the very first time they had never experienced before, and that was chariots. They were just infantry soldiers. That's all they were. They were a light, quick, mobile, moving military force. But they did not have anything like these northern tribes, these brass chariots. So this was a formidable enemy that they were facing, and as God gives to them this great sense of not only do they have this amazing weapon, but they have a lot of people. And as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he actually lists 
the potential enemy that Joshua was facing here from the northern tribes. 300,000 infantry, 10,000 cavalry troops, and 20,000 chariots. That was the estimate from an ancient historian. This is what Joshua very possibly faced as he looked at the northern tribes. Now, if you think about those kinds of statistics, it's amazing to me that Joshua kept, kept thinking as a leader, as a military individual, as a, as a strategic planner, as well as a tactician uh, expert. There's one thing that he only knew, and that is when you go to war, it's the offensive. The offensive move is what you need to always take into place. So as soon as he heard that the battle was starting to form, he wasted no time. He put all of his men on a march, and a five-day march to head off any kind of surprise attack from the northern tribes. As the northern, northern tribes, city-states were starting to, to muster together to go to war against the nation of Israel, Joshua wanted to get to them before they got completely organized. And uh, so the Canaanites were mobilizing in a place called Merom. And, and in this particular situation, in the five days that Joshua took his troops to go there, what is every leader thinking when he's taking his people into position where they can do battle? He's wondering if they're going to win. He's wondering if they have enough. He's wondering if the surprise attack is going to be enough of an edge. But one of the most amazing things that occurs to him on this march north is God speaks to him. And God speaks to him and says, do not be afraid. And we remember the lesson. Every time that God says, do not be afraid, why does he say that? Because there's a reason to be afraid. There's a reason to be afraid if we look at the potential enemy But instead, God wants to divert our attention away from the threat of the enemy toward him. Don't be afraid of them, and you don't be afraid of them by taking their eyes off of them and looking at me. And God makes them a promise, I will hand them over to you, to Israel. And not just so that you can take care of them, but so that you realize that I hand them over to you because they are slain. You heard about the Texan who went up with his buddy up to Alaska to do bear hunting? He'd never done any bear hunting before. And his friend says, well, how are we going to hunt bears if we've never hunted them before? Don't worry, we'll get bear. So he gets up early the next morning when his buddy's asleep and he's out there foraging around in the woods. His buddy wakes up because he hears all this screaming and yelling. And he goes out of the tent and looks, and here's his buddy running to the tent as fast as he can. Right behind him is this massive bear just chasing him. And so his buddy runs through the tent. He says, I got one, you take care of it, and I'm going to go out and get another. You know, it's, it's a matter of, you know, yeah, you brought him here, but what am I supposed to do with it? Well, God doesn't do something that simple for the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to deliver them to you slain. They're going to be dead when I hand them to you. That's why you don't have to be afraid of them, as long as you keep your eyes and trust on me. Something about Joshua's spiritual sensitivity to Almighty God, not just because of his amazing leadership and his four great qualities, but his ability to discern spiritually what God was saying to him. Now this causes me to pause. I mean, I paused this last week and looked back at this and said, man, oh man, one of the greatest things Moses ever did, and people hardly ever give him credit for it, one of the best things he ever did was he spotted young Joshua's potential, and he brought him along as his aide so that Joshua could learn everything that he could see and experience with Moses to prepare him someday for the leadership of the nation of Israel. He discipled before discipleship was ever a word. He mentored him before the concept of mentoring ever existed. Yet something about Moses and his great leadership found in this young man the potential to do something very, very exciting. 
How many of us are discipling somebody younger for the next generation as we give them all of our experience so that they can be successful in the name of Jesus Christ as we pour and give out what we can to them? Well, when I look at this life uh, that Joshua had and Moses saw in him, and I try to summarize it all in my mind, very clearly, somewhere along the line, Joshua had this teachable spirit. Not like those who were highly competitive and thinking that Moses had lost it every occasion they could to complain against him. Something teachable about the spirit of Joshua. Amazing sense here where the solution was the objective that Moses had and Joshua saw He was not a whiner, but he was always solution-oriented. Something amazing about the adaptability, that there are always new solutions to new problems. We've never experienced anything like this before. How in the world are we going to overcome it? Look for what God has provided. If God presents us with a problem that we have never experienced before, he will always provide the solution as we trust him to understand what we are now facing. Concrete signs of amazing talent. And somehow Moses had that ability to discern potential leadership talent in somebody like Joshua. There was balance under duress. He he wasn't someone who panicked when things got difficult. And there was this great sense of humility because he let God get all the glory. He handled pressure really well. Now, if I could go back and look at all the things that uh, Moses saw in Joshua, I can't always find them specifically, but as I watched Joshua's life unfold after he was given the responsibility, he learned those personal reactions from someone, somewhere, somehow in the process. And frankly, I was this last week thinking Moses' one of his greatest contributions to the nation of Israel was giving them their next great leader. So here, at the the sense where mission is accomplished, and the scripture tells us in uh, chapter 11, verse 23, so Joshua took the entire land. He finishes up his conquest of Palestine. Just as the Lord had directed Moses. And that was a phrase that launched me back to thinking, why in the world did Moses choose Joshua, and what did he see in this young man? The command was given to the predecessor of Joshua. And Joshua fulfilled God's command for the nation of Israel. And he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal divisions. Joshua was incredibly unselfish. He didn't say, well, I was your leader, therefore I deserve. He didn't do any of that kind of thing. He did it according to God's plan. What an unselfish leader he was. Then the land had rest for a war. That was amazing. Seven words that finish up chapter, chapter 11. Then the land had rest more. Some people will look at Joshua and say, man, oh man, the God that you believe in, he's a bloodthirsty, uh, bloodlust kind of God. I don't know how you can follow someone like that. Well, that's not the truth. The truth is God is a God of peace. But the justice that he meets out because of sin is a reflection of his righteousness and holiness. The truth at the end, very clearly, Joshua took what God gave him and what God directs He always makes possible. God does not direct Joshua to take this tribe to face these kings unless God has already historically, in prophecy, determined victory. God will never lead us where he is not already provided. That is one of the great truths from the book of Joshua in the first 11 chapters. 
He will never lead us where he has not already provided. Now, gentlemen, that's the kind of faith that gives confidence in the lives of all those who follow after us. If we can believe God in that kind of detail, what an amazing, phenomenal truth that we live by. Godly leaders succeed when they serve those that they lead. It's not a matter of what we gain for ourselves, but it's really a matter of what these individuals can receive as we serve their lives. God loves peace from war. That is the God that we serve. I'm not a great historian, but sometimes the stories in history really strike me fascinatingly. And the Civil War here in the United States, which is a part of our very ugly American history, was an awful conflict between the North and the South, brother against brother, sometimes son against father. And in the, the great war that, that was here on our, our soil, the North had all the industry and all the resources. The South had all the leadership. And the North had all the population, but the South had the morale among the spirit who followed those in leadership. And it wasn't long before the realization that leadership and morale overwhelmed And that's when the North, in the month of September in 1862, when the morale of the Northern troops absolutely disappeared. And all the troops left the battlefield from the Northern side, and they all were marching North. And they weren't marching with a good spirit. Their heads were down, their arms were down, they were dragging their weapons, they were helping the, the injured. It was a time when the South could have risen at that moment and won the Civil War. Because the northern armies, at that point in September, the morale was gone. But one of the most amazing things that really hardly gets any, any kind of historical recognition is one of the things that Abraham Lincoln did. And it wasn't because he was a great leader, but because of his amazing discernment. He looked at the troops, he looked at his leadership, he heard all the advice, everyone was talking to his ear. But one thing about Lincoln that he did at that point is he knew and he realized This was not a tactical issue. It was a morale issue. How in the world could he raise the morale of the northern troops to go back into the battle and fight for victory? And for some reason, somehow, and I still haven't figured out how he did it, but he knew that General George McClellan, who was the teacher of the vast majority of the northern troops, who taught them how to go to war and how to fight a battle, their great teacher for some reason, stimulated something in Abraham Lincoln's mind, and Abraham Lincoln called him up to lead the northern troops against the protests of almost all of his military leaders because they did not see the military potential or value of McClellan in the battlefield. But that's not what Abraham Lincoln wanted to do. He wanted to re-inspire his troops to go back in the battle. McClellan had somehow had that ability as a great teacher to inspire his men to want to serve the nation even at the risk of their own lives and maiming of their own bodies. McClellan answered the call. Abraham Lincoln waved him off as he climbed on that mighty black stallion and rode down the road to Virginia. And when he met up with the columns of northern troops that were all in retreat, he hardly said a word. But he stopped and looked at these men that he had trained. And he took off his hat and he waved it at them. And he shouted a word of encouragement. And the most amazing thing happened, and still the historians can never explain how it happened or why it happened. They just explain what happened. 
And all of a sudden, the cheers started to go up among the northern troops, these who were discouraged and who were leaving the battle. And they say that the cheers of the northern troops started when McLean, McClellan saw his first man, and it spread all the way back down to Virginia. And the northern troops turned around, re-entered the battle, and people say that was what changed the outcome of the Civil War. The presence of General George McClellan and the spirit that Abraham Lincoln saw in him with a discernment to say, this is what our troops need. Discernment is a key component in good leadership. Do we have the talent to see it in the lives of those who are coming after us? That's what Joshua 11 is all about. Have a great time in your table talks, guys. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.